Radio. This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. The Adventures of Salt and Soap at Grand Canyon is the true story of two puppies who wandered into the canyon and engaged in some great escapades. Multiple rim-to-rim hikes, a whitewater rafting trip, and even a helicopter ride, all while ultimately snuggling their ways into park rangers' hearts. The author of this charming book for children, interpretive ranger Lori Rome, adopted the pair of adventurers after meeting them at the bottom of the canyon at Phantom Ranch, the historic oasis on the north side of the Colorado River that's tucked in right next to Bright Angel Creek. She took salt and soap in as lost and found items. But with Lori, the intrepid duo found a home. And home for all of them is now Capitol Reef National Park in south-central Utah, where they've been joined by a third dog, another stray, Mo, whose proper name is Maury, after the Morrison Rock Formation near where he was found. Maury, who's a delightful little border collie, has just three legs, but Laurie insists he's still the fastest herding dog you'll meet and a mean frisbee catcher. Well, I'm Donna Haleson, your host of On the Road with Mac and Molly, and with us today is Laurie Rome. She'll join us after the break to chat about salt, soap, and their buddy Morris. She'll grant us entree to her life as a ranger in parks from Alaska to Florida. We'll hear stories about pets and wildlife in the parks, and we'll learn about Lori's exciting work with mountain lions at Capitol Reef. All that and more after these commercial messages. So please stay with us. We'll be right back with Lori Rome. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. This is your host, Donna Haleson. And today we have the pleasure of chatting with Lori Rome, author of The Adventures of Salt and Soap in Grand Canyon and Chief of Interpretation at Capitol Reef National Park in South Central Utah. Thank you, Lori, for taking time to be with us today. Great. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. 
Wonderful. Well, as I first encountered you as a writer, as the author of The True Story of Salt and Soap, I wonder if we might start our chat with a walk through the book. So, Laurie, could you bring us into the story how and where and uh, what folks were doing at the canyon when they came upon the puppies? You bet. I would love to. Um, It is a really unique story, and I have to say that I just got lucky that I happened to be in the middle of all the pieces that came together. So it was 2003, and I guess it first started with some of the Park Service rangers, including my friend Kirsten, doing a patrol hike way up in the far eastern part of the canyon, and right at the beginning of their trail, these two little puppies were there. And the park is right on the boundary of the Navajo Reservation, and it's really not that unusual to have stray dogs, loose, you know, res dogs, if you will, um, kind of wandering around. So they encountered some of these dogs, and one of the other rangers she was hiking with is a big dog lover and gave them tuna. And then you know what that means. They, the dogs followed the rangers the entire hike to the bottom of the canyon. And this is where they were meeting a river trip with other rangers on this big patrol uh, adventure. And the dogs stayed the night with them and camped in a thunderstorm and, you know, went from tent to tent to get out of the rain. And in the morning, the rangers knew, you know, obviously can't have dogs in national parks, most of them at least, and needed to hike them out of there. And so that was the plan, and some other rangers hiked them out, and were supposed to bring them to a pound, but that did not happen. The way I found out about this was, I guess a week after Kirsten hiked out of the canyon, she called me and told me all about these puppies. She knew how much I love dogs, and I was just tickled. I thought, oh, how cute, a little black dog, a little white dog. And they had called them Salt and Soap because they had hiked into Saltwater Wash and Soap Canyon. So that was that first part of the story. I didn't think much of it. But then it must have been another week later that I'm working at the bottom of the Grand Canyon at Phantom Ranch, and... Somebody knocks on the door early in the morning, and I open it up, and here are these river runners holding a little black puppy and a little white puppy under their arms. And, I mean, we're, granted, we're at Phantom Ranch. This is 5,000 feet below, you know, the the south rim. It's a 10-mile hike. We're out there, and they've got these dogs. And it was the weirdest lost and found item I'd ever taken in as a ranger, and we brought them in, and the river runners are kind of in a hurry to get on their way. And I've got these dogs at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It didn't take too long for me to think about this and realize wait a minute, these might be those dogs Kirsten was talking about. So I called her, and she worked at the backcountry office. I'm like, now what did you say those dogs look like? And she described them like, Kirsten, I think they're down here. And she literally got off work that night at 5 and hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, got down in like two and a half hours to confirm, like, oh, my gosh, that's them. And uh, so we had them at, at the bottom of the canyon for not, maybe not quite a week, 
and trying to figure out, well, how do we get them out of here? It's way too far to hike. And so it just, luck has it that a uh, helicopter was flying down to do water testing on the water system. And they, you know, the pilot had a blast. They brought down a little dog kennel and the whole helitat crew loaded in these little puppies into the helicopter, this beautiful McDonnell Douglas, you know, no tail rotor, gorgeous helicopter. And they got an eight minute flight out of the Grand Canyon. And I just happened to be in the middle to see the rangers hike in with them, to meet the river runners who rafted them about 70 miles, and then spend time with them at Phantom. So I was in the, the right place at the perfect time. What kind of condition were they in when you first saw them? Well, have you ever been on a river trip? Yes. <laughs> well, you probably realize that you're fed well on river trips, and uh, especially Grand Canyon river <laughs> trips, lots of food. So actually, these guys were in amazing shape. When Kirsten met them on the hike, they were scrawny and not doing super great. Then when they met the rangers and then afterwards the river runners, these dogs are no fools. They found the food, and they were fat and frisky and happy and playful, they were actually quite chubby because they were eating rich, decadent human food that, you know, they since have not done, like steak and potatoes and all the things the river runners would have. Well, how old do you think they were when, uh, when you first saw them? Well, when we brought them to the vet, you know, shortly thereafter, based on the teeth, the vet thought they were maybe three months old. So that's pretty amazing to be a little baby puppy and hiking and rafting. And they even flipped in one of the rapids and, you know, the dogs are swimming in the water. Kind of scary, but, you know, they made it as puppies. Did you ever learn how they ended up on the uh, Eastern Rim? You know, we didn't, but like I said, all we can really sort of figure is they're probably feral or stray dogs, which is not that uncommon on the Navajo Reservation. You do see a fair amount of dogs that are loose, so kind of chalked it up to being more of those loose dogs. We think they're sisters. The vet said, you know, they're about the same age, about the same size. They've never been apart a day in their life. They have the same behaviors and and mannerisms, and it's cute. They really haven't had any minute apart. Well, what happened to them after they were brought up to the rim? Now, how did they end up in your care? (laughs) Well, I think anyone who's had dogs could probably agree with this. There's just some animals you meet and you just feel like an instant bond with. And, oh, I felt that with these dogs. But I had a job at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, so I couldn't have them. So everybody wanted them because they were such an unusual pair with such a great story. But one of our friends kept them until I could get a new job on the South Rim. And so I moved back up to the south rim of the Grand Canyon and adopted salt and soap and haven't been apart from them since. How long do you think they were down in the canyon? And can you tell us a little bit about what the conditions are down by Phantom Ranch and surrounds and even down by the river? You know, they must have been feral for, again, maybe three months, and I can see it in their behavior today. Soap can, you know, actually she's a pretty good hunter, not in national parklands, of course, and salt is a good gatherer. Uh, She's always eating the juniper berries, so I can just see that they were 
fending for themselves, finding their own food, rooting around, eating plants and nuts and seeds, things like that. So when they were in the canyon, you know, that first three months, I would imagine it was really hard. This is not a great place for a domestic dog to be. The section of the canyon where they were found is really hot. It's really dry. This time of year, when this story happened in 2003, it was May, and the temperatures can soar over 100. There's no shade. There's no water except at the rivers. So I don't think a lot of these stray dogs probably have, you know, very long lives. So, you know, when they were on the river trip, uh, again, it's super hot conditions. You know, there's reasons dogs aren't allowed in, in most national parks, but safety is a huge one. I mean, there's snakes and scorpions. The temperatures are over 100. It's hot and it's dry. I think these two dogs got really lucky that they happened to just find all these generous people to, you know, take care of them and, and help them find their way to a home. It sounds as though there may be some other dogs that have found their way down into the canyon as well. Have you ever encountered any others, whether they were living or had uh, had died? You know, I worked at Grand Canyon for about 10 years, and I really haven't heard of dogs in the canyon, which is good. Uh, you know, mostly up on the rim. I would imagine, you know, animals are, are looking for where they can get food and water and shelter, and that's just not uh, something you'd find in that hot, dry desert part of the world. Now, in the story of Salt and Soap, you mentioned that they ended up on a bit of a river trip. Can you tell us a little bit about the river? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, Grand Canyon river trips are kind of world-class, world-famous. People get on wait lists, and, and they could wait years to get on one of these river trips. And it, it makes me giggle that Salt and Soap just got themselves on one instantly. Of course, they were naughty on many levels. They're dogs, not supposed to be down there in the first place. Uh, but they also didn't have a permit, nor were they wearing life jackets, all things that humans have to have. But they got to go on this amazing river trip. These are, you know, up to Class 10 rapids. Most rivers have that Class 1 to 5 rating, but Grand Canyon is so unique and difficult and unusual that it has its own, you know, up to a class 10. And so these dogs were found at about river mile 11, and they rafted through some really huge, huge white water all the way to Phantom Ranch, which is at river mile 88. And so these people who picked them up, I've actually since met them. Um, they saw the book at the Grand Canyon and flipped through it and went, well, now that's unusual. That sounds like the story we had. And they contacted me, and sure enough, we got together, and, and we're friends now. But So they filled me in on some of that backstory. And, you know, they saw these puppies on the side of the river, and they were whimpering, and they had jumped into the water and started swimming out at the boat. And they're like, what is going on? So they, they pulled their boats over, and, you know, they knew they weren't supposed to have dogs. They're like, but we didn't bring them. And they might die and literally they jumped into the water and swam after the river runners so they scooped them up and put them in their boat and like well maybe we'll take them to the ranger station and maybe we'll turn them in and you know that way they won't die and what they tell me is these dogs had a blast I mean except for the part of flipping in one of the rapids and it was very sweet they were animal lovers too when their boat flipped and dogs went in the water and the people went in the water too but the first thing they all screamed was get the puppy 
cheese. So I thought that was really sweet. And, uh, you know, they, they had them there. They camped every night. They ate well. They honestly probably had quite a fun experience, and, uh, you know, for 80-some miles through the Grand Canyon. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now, you had said down at Phantom Ranch, can you tell us a little bit about the life of a ranger working at that station? And then you mentioned that you ended up back on the on the South Rim and what you were then doing at that point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So down at Phantom Ranch, I was working as an interpretive park ranger. And, you know, I don't represent the park service right now. I'm just sharing my own stories. But down there, it's a, it was an amazing job. I did that for about four years. And imagine having to pack all your food up once a week, box it up, put it in coolers, make sure it's, you know, travel worthy. And then it would be shipped down on the back of a mule down a 10-mile trail and you would hike down, uh, you'd get a wheelbarrow, put all your stuff in it, and wheel it about a mile up canyon to the ranger station and unload it. Then you live down there for about a week, and what a wonderful experience. You're given programs on the nature and the culture of Grand Canyon. You're sharing with uh, visitors from all over the world who just love the resource, helping them stay safe, and, and of course, you get to do a lot of hiking and patrolling and checking in on things. Um, and it was a wonderful job. Uh, of course, you can't have a dog, though, so that would probably be the one big downside to that. So on the south rim, I was able to transfer up there, doing the same thing, interpretive programs, sharing stories with the public, teaching them about these amazing resources that we all collectively own and get to enjoy. And that allowed me to have dogs because I lived on the south rim where there's actually a fair amount of rim trails that you can do with a dog. It's not so bad. Well, my husband and I live and work in Grand Canyon now, and maybe we might chat just a little bit about the community that is here. I know that there are between 2,000 and 3,000 residents, and they can range from river runners and uh, park rangers to wranglers and bus drivers and teachers, because there is a K-12 school here that might surprise people. I think that's the, it's my understanding, that's the only park in the country, the Grand Canyon is the only park in the country that has that K-12 school, and there is a clinic here, and uh, maybe, you know, would you like to share a little bit about your life here at Grand Canyon and the community? that exists. Oh, yeah. I spent, like I said, I spent 10 years at Grand Canyon. That's the longest I have ever lived anywhere. So it's where I got my kids, salt and soap. It's where I married my husband um, right on the South Rim at sunrise. So it's a very meaningful place to me, uh, as I'm sure it is to so many people. And it is. It's very unusual. It's its own little world inside of itself. And you're right. K-12 school, only one in the whole National Park System. Uh, it's a lot of different eclectic people uh, from all over the world. But primarily, at least the one really wonderful thing is they're all there for pretty much the same reason, at least most of them, and that's for Grand Canyon itself. It's just a spectacular resource, and people are drawn to it and want to live by it. But living there is probably some of the best moments of my life. There's lots of trails you can walk on. I mean, imagine getting off of work and every day 
you are walking along the edge of the Grand Canyon, that's your life, and you see sunrise and sunset, and there's there's elk all over in the forest, and the occasional mountain lion sighting that occurs, and, you know, those tassel-eared squirrels up in the trees chattering in the mornings, and, oh, the gorgeous monsoons in the summertime, and the snows in the winter. It sees such diversity of weather and people and visitors from all over the world. That might have been one of my favorite things is all the visitors from everywhere that you could talk with from, you know, Asia and Europe and, you know, sharing stories and what brings them to a place. As far as a living community, you know, that was a lot of fun, too, because there's so many residents. You know, there's lots of folks to hang out with. There's a little grocery store, even, a little restaurants, and um, lots of fun things to do, a little workout center, even a library, which I think is wonderful to have in a community. Well, I know that you were back at the canyon not too long ago for a book signing at one of the Grand Canyon Association Park stores. And wonder, did you bring salt and soap with you? I bring salt and soap everywhere. <laughs> yes, uh, we we like to do book sightings, salt and soap from a very early age, from that river trip and hiking and helicopter ride. They have just really bonded with people. And it's funny, especially rangers, because they see green and gray and they start wiggling and, you know, ooh, cooing and, you know, barking and whimpering. They, I think they associate family with rangers, so it doesn't matter who it is if it's someone in green and gray but they go to all the book signings with me of course um, and you know they photograph their book as uh, you might have seen Uh, I got a a little bit of non-toxic ink and put it on their feet and squashed it onto paper and then they had a company in Flagstaff Arizona make a a rubber stamp of this I didn't know you could do that and so uh, they actually can sign their own book at all these book signings. I loved that. I thought that was just the greatest thing. And I love the uh, the word. I don't know if that's one that you've coined or if that kind of is the, the potograph that uh, comes alongside of your autograph in the in the book. And, and that was just delightful. Well, you've mentioned uh, the rangers and the just the love that uh, Salt and Soap have for them. And uh, most especially, I'm sure, for, for you and, uh, and your husband, Kevin. And so what I'd like to do is just take a break for a moment and when we return speak a little bit about your life as a park ranger how you entered service and where and when and why and with whom and what you love about the work and what some of your greatest challenges might be but first as as i've said let's take a short break for some commercial messages so listeners please sit stay we'll be right back after this pause sit stay We'll be right back after a short pause. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. 
Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Well, we're back and chatting with Lori Rome, author of The Adventures of Salt and Soap in Grand Canyon and Chief of Interpretation at Capitol Reef National Park in South Central Utah. Lori has worked for the National Park Service in settings from Alaska to Florida. And as we noted before we went to break, we'd like to focus in this segment of the program on Lori's life as a park ranger. So, Lori, perhaps we might begin by exploring what a park ranger is, what a park ranger does what kinds of responsibilities rangers may have. So shall we do that? Sure, you bet. And, uh, you know, I have lots of ideas about different things rangers can do and what it represents. Uh, you know, for the, the Park Service has lots of different kinds of rangers. There's law enforcement, and there's interpretation, there's backcountry rangers, and there's a whole slew of staff that people probably don't think about. Trail crew workers, maintenance employees, administration folks that really keep everything running. So almost collectively, you could look at all these people as just the, the caretakers of these really special places. Um, national parks don't make up a very large percentage of our public land, but they certainly make up some of the most spectacular. And so everybody plays a role in taking care of it. Most visitors, I think, see that green and gray, though, and that flat hat, that kind of classic park ranger. I was certainly drawn to it. And uh, the role that I have played for the last 17 years is primarily as an interpreter. And that job is to really interpret the park resources. People always ask me, oh, what, what languages do you speak? You're an interpreter. And I actually do speak French and Spanish, but that's not the point of this. We interpret the natural world. So why is the geology significant? What is the ecological story? What is the significant history that occurs in these, you know, amazing public lands? And that's why I was certainly drawn to the, working for this agency, because it's about preservation and conservation. So I think my interests and values are in line with those of the agency that I've chosen to work for, and that's, you know, conservation. How do rangers come into the work? Is there a particular sort of background that people need to have before entering into service? And, and what was your preparation for this work? Oh, that's a good question. And people ask that all the time, like, how do I get your job? <laughs> and uh, I'd say most people have a background in natural or cultural resources. That just makes sense. That's something that they're interested in. My background is geography and geology. And, but I have worked with people who had business degrees, and they got tired of working in corporate America and quit and went to work for the Park Service and, and live in the wild. So I've met a little bit of everybody in here. As far as myself, you know, the geography and geology degree really helped me understand the, the natural ecosystems, a little bit of background in biology as well. And a lot of folks um, have language skills, anything that might help with the visitor services, and then some medical skills like being an EMT or any of those things that might help the visitors here in our Now, there are permanent and seasonal rangers as well, and I wonder if you might talk about that. I know that I've met rangers who have, let's say they spend uh, six months of the year at a big cypress, and then they're at Grand Canyon. Is that pretty common within the service? Absolutely. I don't think 
the park system would uh, would be what it is without the seasonal workforce. Uh, I think most of us started seasonal. My husband and I actually were seasonal together for five years before we got permanent, and that's actually kind of a short time frame. Some of my friends were seasonal for 10 years even, and some are still seasonal, but that's also a lifestyle choice. It's actually quite fun. If you work in, uh, I've got some friends that work in Crater Lake in the summertime, and every winter they go down to the Everglades. We, my husband and I, uh, worked at, you know, Denali in the summer and Everglades in the winter and then Yosemite in the summer and Coronado National Memorial in the winter. So it's fun to move around and see all of these spectacular resources. And those seasonal jobs are, you know, a real bulk of the work effort that you see and a lot of the rangers you meet will be seasonal and, you know, I think most of us all dream of one day being permanent and uh, I just got very lucky that I did at Grand Canyon. So where did you begin your career in Park Service? Well, I probably began my career in the Park Service (laughs) maybe when I was in my other career. I'm one of those people that grew up with parents who were teachers, and they always brought us to national parks in the summertime. And so I feel like at a really young age, I was exposed to how spectacular these places were. And it really sort of set a stage for me. I went into engineering, of all things, after college. I had, uh, had one of those epiphanies. You know, my, my dad actually passed away, and it was jarring. I was kind of young, and I realized that life is really really short and very precious and I better do exactly what I believe in and want to do right now. Um, He always told me to follow my bliss as Joseph Campbell said and so I did. I quit and I went to the park service at Mount Rainier National Park. I'd grown up in Seattle primarily and I'd see this big beautiful mountain looming in the distance my whole life hanging out and hiking and camping there and I went to it and the second day of work I'll never forget this. The chief of interpretation there came into our training and she started singing and playing guitar. And it was Jerry Jeff Walker's Night Rider's Lament. I don't know if you've heard it, but if you look at the lyrics, it will make sense. Uh, you know, why do we work for short money? And uh, it's the experience of the doing of the thing. And I knew at that moment that I was in the right place. And that was 17 years ago. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I wonder if you might have some stories that you could share about pets and wildlife, pets in the park, what rules apply to them. You mentioned that many of the parks will not allow pets at all here at the Grand Canyon. They're allowed, are not allowed below the rim, but can be on the trails above the rim. So I wonder if you might uh, just share a little bit of that. Yeah, as a National Park Service fan myself, and that's what I do in my free time and days off, I go to national parks, and I go everywhere with my dogs. National parks, I know that they're a really small amount of the total public land acreage, and there are different rules and regs for each of the park sites. I mean, I've looked it up myself. I go to the nps.gov website and surf around, so I always double-check where can I go, what can I do, some parks 
you can do more, like great sand dunes. You can be in the preserve section with your dog and go for a hike. But places like Arches or Canyonlands, virtually, you know, it's not a good spot for dogs. Again, the temperatures aren't good, but it's also closed off to most, you know, domestic dog travel. So I double check wherever I go and see the differences. Some parks have some places. Most of them don't. And I think there's probably really good reasons for that. Uh, as much as I love my dogs, they do bark at wildlife. They would chase it if they weren't on leash because dogs always have to be on leash. Um, and then the poop thing. We all have to scoop our poop. That's just how that is. Otherwise, you know, get into the water system or disrupt wildlife behavior. So Grand Canyon uh, was pretty good. You could do all those trails on the rim, but yeah, not below the rim. Well, maybe we just uh, shift gears here a little bit and speak a bit about the challenges that are faced by wildlife in some of the parks in which you've worked. Oh, I've worked at some really interesting parks with some challenges for wildlife. Uh, When I worked in the Everglades, I remember the Florida panther really struggling, and the big, I guess, reason for at least that creature was habitat fragmentation. I mean, national parks are amazing places. Some of them are large. Most aren't that big, but they're, I think one of the great things about national park spaces is its habitat for wildlife. It's not just recreation and history and great geology, but these are really living, breathing ecosystems where species are living out their lives um, and a chance for them to in a world where it seems like we're, we're losing land and we're losing space. And so they become very valuable. Of course, they're not, they're not islands, though. Animals don't see the boundaries. They don't see the fence lines. And they move through all of the places that humanity exists. So what I have noticed is, you know, just my own personal observations is that that's a challenge. At Grand Canyon, the California condors suffered tremendously. It's a very endangered species from spent lead fragmentation that they were ingesting. Wildlife species from top predators like mountain lions, which have really captivated my heart and imagination, but all the way down to, you know, endangered cactus at the park that I'm working at right now that struggle from, you know, cattle grazing or trailing. So these species, I'd say their biggest challenge, unfortunately, it seems like it's, it's humanity and us and moving around on the landscape. Well, you are now at uh, Capitol Reef and Chief of Interpretation there. Could you tell us a little bit about your responsibilities in that role? And are there some special projects that you'd like to note? Oh, yes. I would love to tell you about Capitol Reef. This is a really wonderful park. And as much as I love Grand Canyon, you get those antsy feet and you want to see the world. I didn't go too far, though. The bottom rock layer of Capitol Reef National Park is Grand Canyon's top rock layer, the Kaibab Limestone. So I still feel connectivity. I'm still on the Colorado Plateau, so I feel this home place is still here with me. Here at Capitol Reef, it's, it's so interesting to have been in this park service world for you know 17 years. You start as a seasonal, and I've been very lucky to work my way up, and now I'm at that level where some of the people that inspired me when I was just beginning were at. So I now 
hire the seasonal staff and, and manage some of the park operations in the visitor services and interpretation world. Uh, I still do programs. I have the Mountain Lion program on Wednesday night. I really love them. And I guess one of my favorite projects that I'm working on right now is uh, we did receive some funding from National Park Foundation through the Disney Nature Impact Grant to study mountain lions at Capitol Reef. There's not a lot known about them in this part of the world. Only a couple of very, very small studies have occurred, and we do see sightings. Every now and again, a deer is killed in the area by the campground. We're like, boy, it was just bugging me. Like, where are they? How many? What's the frequency? And so we're about to start a camera trap study, and that will be, it's non-invasive. Cameras go up. There's no flash, no glare. Nothing upsets the animal. doesn't really disrupt people. And it'll start getting photo images of wildlife moving through the park, uh, be it bear or mountain lion or any other creatures that are moving around. Wonderful. Well, how are Salt and Soap doing these days? Salt and Soap are doing great. They're right here looking at me. They enjoy, you know, the things they've always enjoyed. We get, This weekend we went hiking, and we like to go canoeing with them. And if it's really hot and they can't go for a walk, we even have a bike trailer, and my husband and I will go biking and, and put them in the back of it. Plus, they have a little brother now. <laughs> oh, they do. And what is that little brother? Oh, the little brother needs his own book. I tell you, little brother's name is Mo from Maury from the Morrison Rock Formation. I don't know what it is about me, but when I go to a national park, I seem to have a dog adopt me. Maury, my first month of being at Capitol Reef, fell off the back of someone's truck, we think, maybe a flatbed, which is kind of common around here. He unfortunately was just left there for dead. And some German visitors found this little whimpering dog, you know, just bones and fur, put him in their car and drove him to the rangers who brought him to me. <laughs> they said, oh, you like dogs. What do we do? And, uh, you know, I, I brought him up to the vet. And unfortunately, the vet was like, oof, I can't save that back leg. And so he is a three legged border collie from Capitol Reef. Oh, wow. Oh, my. Sounds like another book in the works. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, where can folks purchase copies of Salt and Soap's Adventure? They can get copies of the book at from Grand Canyon Association at grandcanyon.org. And the neat thing about this is, at least I'm, we're all just proud of this, proceeds from that book from Grand Canyon Association go to support park functions. And so it's nice to think that they have a legacy in helping to preserve and protect that resource. Right. The Grand Canyon Association is the nonprofit partner of the park, and there are similar associations in national parks all over the country that come alongside to raise funds that uh, are so desperately needed to support, to supplement, I should say, the budget that's provided by the national government. Well, I wonder if there's anything else that you'd uh, think would be really important to share just before we close. Oh, well, I guess a lot of important things to share. You know, I guess one of the things I think about when I consider salt and soap and, and now little brother Maury is that, you know, if people are looking to have another pet brought into their life, um, to consider a stray or a dog that needs a home rather than, you know, seeking out maybe something from, from breeders. And there's just a lot of dogs out there that don't have homes, and it'd be great if we started, you know, bringing them into our lives. They're wonderful creatures. 
I hope people get to see Salt and Soap in a movie one day. That's my dream. <laughs> but I've got lots of dreams. Um, you know, maybe I guess the biggest thing is I'm a real animal lover, domesticated animals, wild animals. And my biggest hope and I guess the reason for being a ranger, for choosing the lifestyle that I have, is that I really want to help educate people to see the value of, of wildlife, of all life. And it's really up to us to allow them to survive. Their fates are in our hands. I mean, we share the planet. And I'm, I guess my hope is just that humanity finds some space, you know, in the landscape and in their hearts for all species, all species to survive. Because I think their survival is pretty telling in our own survival. And I have hope for both of us. <laughs> On that note, I think uh, we can all certainly agree and so grateful for you taking the time with us today, Lori. What a delightful, delightful person you are. And I hope that uh, some of our listeners may have the opportunity to hear you as an interpreter at Capitol Reef and that they will uh, seek out the book that you've written about salt and soap. And maybe we will see a movie of them one day and maybe we'll see a book about uh, their new little brother. <laughs> and so just uh, so glad that you were able to spend this time with us today. Thank you for letting us be on your show. Oh, that, that was from Salt and Soap, too. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, if our listeners do have any questions or comments about today's show, I would invite you to email me at the address that you'll find in my On the Road blog. And as always, I hope you'll join us next time as we head out on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.